Oh, oh, recording. oh, there it is. There it is. There she is. All right. So uh, do we want to just hit the agenda? Yeah. Well, first things first, uh, we want to, this episode is about liber- liberation theology, but we want to start by uh, introducing the guests that we have today. Andy, do you want to introduce them? Sure. Uh, today's guest, his name is Greg. Uh, he's a organizer that Key and I work with. Um, here in Augusta, uh, he is more deeper into the liberation theology rabbit hole than us. Uh, so we thought we'd have him on to help us go over this subject. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, and so I do want to say that we're going to be kind of starting off analyzing slash reviewing slash kind of sharing our thoughts on a, a film we put picked for this, uh, which is Romero on. Um, and we'll talk about it more, but that's going to be kind of a starting point. Then we'll really, you know, go from there. Um, but yes, I'm really excited about this one. Um, yeah. So I guess if there's anything uh, before that, if, if there's anything, Greg, that you want to tell uh, like listeners or you want anyone to know about you, you can go ahead with that. Uh, well, sure. I guess uh, I guess talk about my credentials with liberation theology. I mean, I'm sort of a, uh, I got into socialism, you know, several years ago, and then it was only after that that I got into Christianity after experimenting with like different kinds of spirituality and everything. And uh, liberation theology just—it's really one of the things that like drew me into um, Christianity as my chosen, uh, I guess, spiritual sphere to inhabit. Um, so you know, I'm not an expert by any means. I've never read any like real uh, liberation theology books, although I definitely plan to. I mostly get things uh, about it through commentary that I find on the internet. I have a great, there's a great podcast called the Liberation Theology Podcast with a guy named David Inchowskis, who is a um, uh, Jesuit in training. So a lot of what I'm going to be you know, mentioning today is going to be based off of what he talks about um, and brings up. So if I misquote anything or, you know, say anything wrong, that's, that's why I'm not an expert. I just, you know, just have a really deep passion for it and, would like to share it with everybody. So I guess that's my piece. Cool. And, and also I wanted to add that we, we, we intended to have you and your, your friend, Alan, who is now our mutual friend, mm-hmm. um, because Alan, uh, I guess would probably know more than anyone here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, Alan, Alan's more thing was more about, um, you know, biblical exegesis and certain um, things as having to do with like the actual like deep theory of it. But when it comes to liberation theology specifically, they didn't feel super um, uh, confident in talking about it because I I have done a little bit more digging into that particular topic than they have. But they were unfortunately weren't able to to attend today due to other reasons. But you know, yeah, we're okay. So Alan just. Alan just um, is more familiar with like the Bible and the exegesis of that Bible in general. Oh like, yeah, yeah, broad, yeah, in a yeah. broad sense. But you're more yeah. into the liberation theology. Cool, right? Okay, so uh, Key, do you want to do you want to talk about the the movie? Uh, who recommended the movie? Was it Alan? I think. Yes, or it was, was it? Alan. Alan. Alan's the one that brought it to my attention. Yeah, and then okay, Alan let uh, Matthew know. So. Uh, one thing I want to say is about you saying, like, just in case you get anything wrong, we're all novices here. You know, we're all like, I, I'm definitely, I would say I'm a definitely someone who I mm-hmm. consider myself radical, but like, you know, all learning. So it's, it's no worries there. But also, um, before I'm a we. Even, thimbo. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the, the, um, before we even talk about what this movie is, I would like you to give me like maybe your best definition of liberation theology for those who might not know what it is. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so liberation theology is not just, it's actually distinct from just left-wing Christian socialism in general, which is what a lot of people sort of like get mixed up on. Um, it's, it was a very specific strand of theological thought that comes out of Latin America in the 1970s and 80s, and is still being developed today, of course, but that was when it, like, really in its heyday, when a lot of people, like, the big names, like, Gustavo Gutierrez and out of Peru, and you had, um, uh, Ignacio Ericaria, um, out of, he was, yeah, he was from El Salvador, People like him, you have Juan Sabrino and Juan Segundo and a lot and Leonardo Ba from Brazil and there's a lot of there's a lot of big names I could I could throw at you. Um but it was a very specific strand that came out of the anti colonial struggle that was going on in Latin America during those years. So a lot of their um, critiques and a lot of their cultural background plays into liberation theology, although it is definitely a um ideology like it's been applied to the palestinian struggle it's been applied to a lot of people have connected it to the civil rights movement in the united states uh during the 60s um and you could say martin luther king jr was essentially doing a type of american protestant uh, liberation theology but liberation theology at its core i suppose is trying to reconcile uh catholic social teaching Catholic doctrine and dogma specifically, alongside material analysis from the Marxist sphere specifically, and applying all of those to the situation in Latin America during that time period, which actually ends up being, like I said, pretty useful in uh, analyzing other struggles around the world, like the Palestinians, for instance. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but are you saying that liberation theology is like essentially inherently marxist and christian simultaneously yes absolutely and that's that's what well it depends on who you ask so a lot of liberation theologians would have absolutely refused to call themselves uh, marxist or communists even so like ignacio ayacuria like very often refused to call himself a communist and he refused to align himself with that specifically although he you know, absolutely work together with people who are open Marxist and recognize that there was a common goal there. And even his theology was very generous towards them, although he wouldn't have called himself himself that in particular. Would um, would the, the non-Marxist liber, liberation theologians, would they be in the minority position? Um, no. Uh, really, a lot of them would have rejected the political label specifically. Like, they wouldn't have gone around calling themselves Marxists simply because – excuse me – um, they wouldn't have called themselves that mostly due to the political connotations at the time. Like that could get you shot very easily. And a lot of them did end up getting shot like Ignacio Ayacuria, despite calling himself, not refusing to call himself a Marxist, did get end up getting shot in the 1980s by the Salvadoran government, much like St. Oscar Romero did. Um, so okay. a lot, it was mostly like a fame, like a safety thing, but a lot of them I think did have like reservations because a lot of them actually were kind of conservative, much like Oscar Romero was. Okay. So, it's not necessarily ostensibly Marxist. It's not necessarily using that nomenclature. Would you say that there's anything inherent to the analysis that it provides that is necessarily Marxist, even amongst people who didn't uh, personally identify with the label? Oh, 100%. In fact, there is, um, let me see. I can't remember who 
wrote it. There's a there's a book called The Historicity of Christian Salvation that uh, David Nachowskis goes over in his podcast that is essentially just a Marxist historical uh, dialectical analysis, but done using Christianity, like the spiritualism of Christianity. So one thing that he that he asserts is that um, history is essentially a project that is that is um, a relationship between God and man that is a sort of a back and forth partnership trying to reach some sort of end point which would be salvation essentially like there's a concept called theosis which is uh, where humans become divine themselves but anyway the um, the sort of Marxist perspective of that is like history is a process that is moving constantly it's just that liberation theologians who would follow this particular line of uh, logic, and I'm not—I can't remember who the author of this particular text is. I think it was Aya Curia. Um, they would say that God is the author of that dialectic, that of that progress, of that sort of um, ref- refining process. Got it. So okay. there is that is probably the most explicit Marxist influence I can find for you. But a lot of the times it was, um, you know, just general like revolutionary thought, and um, a lot of their praxis was virtually indistinguishable from. Uh, Marxist praxis in the 1980s at the time. So one famous example is the Sandinista government was pretty much the closest we've ever had to a Christian socialist state um, in the world. And of course, it was overthrown by the United States government. <clears throat> I didn't know that the Sandinistas were heavily into Christianity. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, if you if you Google them on their Wikipedia page, when you look at their ideology, this like the first line is, says Marxism and then the second slot says Christian socialism. Like the clergy in Nicaragua were extremely supportive of the regime and of the Sandinista uh, the party and the insurgency. So when and I believe it was after they took control, they actually incorporated a lot of the the clergy members into the government in certain ways. I'm not too too familiar with the structure of that, but I know that they were heavily involved with it. So, cool. um, key does that? Uh, d- is there anything else that you want him to introduce? Because I think he, that's your introduction for what liberation theology is, right? Yeah, yeah. In a very, in a very, I, I got the definition kind of got away from me there, but yeah, that's you know, take all that together, and you would have a a pretty good understanding of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, so do we want to talk about the movie uh, as a segue into kind of how this stuff plays out on the ground a little more? Absolutely. Um, first question. Uh, well, okay, let's let's frame the movie. I think this that might be a better approach. Let's frame the movie before we even get to it. So the movie is, it takes place in uh, El Salvador, correct? And yeah. it's about... Uh, his last, his name was Romero. What was his full name? Um, can't remember. Oscar Romero. Oscar, that's right. Yeah. So Oscar Romero, who's a kind of a, honestly, at the beginning of the movie, he's a very middling, middle of the road, centrist, uh, doesn't want to make any waves, and he's just a, a bishop. And then he gets promoted to archbishop uh, because the basically the right wingers thought he wouldn't try to get in their way. Right? Is that? Uh, good framing yeah definitely that's exactly what happened yeah and he was like super reluctant to get involved in the social struggles struggles that were going on in fact um at first because i i knew this was about liberation theology and i knew he was the main character that's all i knew at first uh things were happening so fast there was one of his other priests 
who was like totally radical, like totally explicitly Marxist. And I thought that was Romero at first. <laughs> I was like, yeah. yo, this must be the the guy the movie this is about, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like he was surrounded by I would say uh very radical clergy. Mm-hmm. And yet he even throughout the whole movie, even though he became this kind of symbol, he never really got as radical as the people around him. Yeah, I mean that's uh you know, and that's very true to his real life uh character. You know, I've He's obviously a really big figure in liberation theology, despite never actually affirming liberation theology itself. He he refused to call himself that. He often just, uh, even to his death, believed that he was just doing, he was just a Christian essentially. Um, but the the character that you're talking about that was extremely radical was um, a priest named uh, Rutilio Grande, yeah. and he was very well known in El Salvador at the time for being very radical and they would have been personal friends. I'm not sure um you know how long the friendship goes back. But as you saw in the movie he at the you know I guess spoilers. Um Rutilo Grande was murdered on the way to a small town along with a young boy and an old man. And they were when you know they were ambushed by government soldiers. And it was after this that Oscar Romero, you know, presided over Rutilio Grande's funeral in the cathedral in San Salvador, and really like committed himself to, you know, the cause that Rutilio wanted him to. You know, yeah. he was always imploring his friend, you know, you can't just sit back and and watch while your people suffer. You have a responsibility for this. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I go. I'm I'm sorry. I just want to say this real quick. Big big disclaimer: There will be spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyone listening, if you don't want it to be spoiled, I mean, he said spoiler in the first place, but click away now. But go ahead, Guy. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's all I want to say. Yeah, I'm gonna just add. Um, if you did not watch the movie, it's we're going to be breaking it down like uh, really fully to like as a starting jump off point. So watch it first, or then listen to this, listen to this first, watch it after, I don't know, um, your life. But I, uh, one thing I wanted to put is when I was watching this in my notes, I was like, 13 minutes in, Romero so far is not based. He's up here like, why are y'all doing this? And I'm like, uh, because like to help people. I was like, I was really confused too. And I also thought that um, Father Grande was like the person that was Romero because I was getting like it was it was really really mm-hmm. fast paced so I, I thought the exact same thing and um one thing and this is a theme I think that kind of flows throughout the the movie there's so much it's really fast paced the movie is really short it's like an hour 45 minutes it's really tense but there's like a few slow moments in it and that I think it like it gives you time to digest what's going on, which is really interesting. And then later I'm going to talk a little bit about what I found interesting from like the cinematography artistic side of it. But um, I will, I I will say that I I thought it was just so interesting because I think there's one point where um, maybe a couple points in the film where Romero says something like, um, like, oh, sorry, are you like, are you a gorilla now? Like to these, these priests or other people who are trying to, you know, help, um, help the working class, help people. And, uh, you know, he, he's like, so are you a Marxist? Are you coming? So it's like, he's very clearly not for this idea, but he's also not for watching his people suffer. So it's this really nice, slow progression of that we see like within Romero, but like you said, he never said, even in the movie, never really said like, Oh, you know, this is like, I'm, I'm a socialist priest. He never said anything like that, which is interesting to me. 
Right. It, the his story, in my opinion, the fact that he was conservative at first and then realized, you know, what he needed to do is anything is just more inspiring. It's like, you know, it, anybody can suck and be in a position of power and then realize that they ought to do the right thing, even though it's in their material, you know, not in the material interest to not to do that, you know. So he had many choices. He had many chances to not do that, to not, uh, you know, take up the cause so to speak and just like stand back and be like so many other clergymen in latin america at the time and just watch people suffer and it's it's due to people like him and ignacio Correa and you know gustavo gutierrez and uh, you know lots of other people um who actually decided like no you know we're gonna we should use our position of power for good you know we actually believe in the things that we say and we're not going to you know just sit back quietly and so i, I always found his his story even if he never fully radicalized you know, I still found it, you know, very uh, compelling in a sense. Yeah, at the be- uh, towards the beginning of the movie, um, there's a scene where Romero and what was the radical priest's name again? I forget his name. Oh, uh, Rutilio Grande. Grande. Uh, Romero and Grande were kind of in like a uh, like a public area in one of like Romero was kind of visiting, and one of Grande's uh, you know congregation members basically. Uh, somebody was kind of like resigned to like the misery that was around and he and he said uh um it's god's will was kind of his way of like dismissing any kind of like mm-hmm. way to like fight against it or whatever and and a woman pipes up and says i think god looks at these things and vomits and romero's reaction to that was to be like bro you're pushing these people too fast like it's you're causing problems and you're causing waves and everything mm-hmm. and so it really goes to show like um, I don't know. I just thought it was a. I thought it was a really good, good, uh, good line. And I actually have a bunch of lines from the movie written down that I thought were. Oh, I mean, on that point, that's actually something that I meant to to bring up specifically in this in this topic because one thing that liberation theology really hammers home that a lot of other uh, theologies don't is that they f- put their focus on the poor and the oppressed people as um, you know the real drivers of the church. It's several, Romero says it several times in the movie, the church is the poor. They are the uh, God is the poor. That is something that that you see frequently pop up in liberation theology, and this idea that, um, you know, what the poor say is what it is. The we should always prioritize the poor's um, or the oppressed's uh, interpretation and of of scripture or current events and stuff like that over all others. You know, because they have they are since Christ came to give the good news to the poor. It is them who should be speaking, and we should be listening as the clergymen is is how they usually define it. And one of the real key um, aspects of liberation theology, in, like in practice in the church, is what's called Christian-based communities. And a lot of the time, and what this looks like essentially is, instead of a sermon where the priest stands up and you know delivers something, some you know uh, interpretation or message or something like that. It's essentially just like a, a, a circle where everybody sits down. You re, maybe read some scripture, or maybe you talk about a current event, and you ask the people in the circle, the actual oppressed people that you're speaking to, to uh, interpret it, get put, you know, put it in their own words. And there's this really amazing book by a liberation theologian named Ernesto Cardinal, where he talks to these people. It's called the Gospel in Salentinami. And Salentinami is like this island archipelago in the middle of a lake in Nicaragua. And it's filled with poor uh, rural farmers. And the book is essentially just his recordings, uh, transcripts of these 
these meetings that they had. And it's honestly just really incredible. It's it's filled with a lot of lines like the the woman saying like God looks at this and vomits, like like they're they're reading Bible passages and interpreting it in their real life uh, circumstances. And some you know there's a lot of disagreement and arguments and stuff like that. People saying oh well I think this and then somebody else takes it a step further and just delivers like a really excellent point on it. It's a it's a really fantastic book and I plan on reading it very soon. But that 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 line when she said that I kind of smiled because I knew that whoever wrote that line knew must have known about these christian based communities and put that in there probably as a nod to that yeah and piggybacking off what you said uh, cuz you were talking about how they were saying that god is like 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 in the poor or something yeah, yeah. there's a line in the movie that says um jesus is not up in the clouds a hammock he is down here building a kingdom i cannot love god who i cannot see if i cannot love brothers and sisters who i can see absolutely and And that's yeah and then there's another line i think romero actually said this where he was like talking to poor people and he was like you are jesus like (laughs) like Mm -hmm. he just said like jesus is here Jesus, Jesus' suffering is in you. His cru- his crucifixion, his cru- crucifixion is um is is in you. You you your suffering is his suffering. You're the same person. You're Jesus. Like straight up, like really strange. Uh, I don't like the like a really strange theological take. Really different exegesis than what I'm used to being exposed to uh, here in the West. Oh yeah, or at I, least in the Northwest. Yeah, the um. Well, like that book that I mentioned earlier, the historicity of Christian salvation. One of the things that he talks about is the salvific, the yeah, it's the salvific nature of historical events and the historic nature of salvific events. So, the the crucifixion as it actually as it happened is a salvific event, but it has a historical dimension to it. And one of the really important things is that that you see liberation theologians assert all the time is that the crucifixion never ended. The crucifixion was happening long before Christ came to Earth. And it never stopped. The poor are always being crucified. They are always on the cross, and it is up to us to take them down. So it, that you know, that's that's perfectly in line with what a lot of uh, liberation theologians assert is that the the struggle never ends. The struggle has never ended. It's still going on today, and it's up to us to you know do something about it. That's really interesting. The poor is already on the cross, so. Why? How did they get to that position? How? What? What kind of um, exegesis um, leads you to the point of this? Like the crucifixion started before the before Jesus was ever born and continues to this day. Like, how do you get to? How do you? How do you conclude that from the Bible? Oh, um, well, the, you know, this is where I learn, run into my limitations. I'm sure there is some very obscure scripture that I have not seen. However, it's it's a very it's, I mean it's a very um, normal Orthodox Christian uh, understanding that all that Christ took on all suffering, a suffering, all human suffering, he took on all pain, and since it is the poor who primarily suffer, you know it's it's their pain that he regards the greatest of the greatest amount of. So the the cry you know and the ex the Exodus event is something that they that many liberation theologians find very key in the historicity. Of of their uh, of their interpretation is that God heard the cry of the oppressed and He reached out. He 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 felt their pain and decided to you know help them liberate themselves in that back and forth agreement. So 
when they say that Christ has always been crucified and is still crucified today, they're essentially just making the, you know, connecting the modern uh, oppression and circumstances of these oppressed people to um, something that is a fairly orthodox Christian idea, which is that Christ feels the pain of every human being and weeps for it. Although I couldn't exact, I couldn't, you know, explicitly tell you what uh, Bible verses or scripture that they look for to um, justify that particular doctrine. Although it is, it's just a very common doctrine, I guess. Okay. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, I when you're, you know, talking about quotes that different people said, um, there was a couple things I the kind of not so great quotes I saw that stuck out to me that I wanted to bring up. And one was uh, that when Romero, he goes to visit the president-elect and, you know, they're like, oh, well, he's busy. He's like, I'll wait. You know, he's like, oh, no, it's fine. I'll wait. And they're like, well, he's going to be gone for a couple hours. He's like, I will wait. And he's like, well, at the very least, give him this letter for me. And the guy goes and he finally gets a letter back when the places, the offices are about to close. And it says something that says, he he wrote a letter to Romero that says there are no political prisoners, just that sentence itself, which I found really, really interesting because all of the like we're getting a lot of like passionate things from um, the sides that are kind of like fighting against, you know, people being killed and and, and people not being able to vote. So we, we we're getting tons of like kind of long form, even like small speeches, but from these people who are trying to stop any type of freedom, we're getting really, really short, but like. I would say powerful words because another thing they say is that there's uh, someone who gives like, there was like a poster going around and it's shown to Romero and it says, be a patriot, kill a priest, which both of those are really, really stark. And, and again, look, we're not, we're not getting that much when we, when we hear stuff from the aristocrats or like the politicians that, you know, Romero goes to, they're like, uh, don't, you know, you're, you're a priest, worry about preaching, you know, you're a priest, like, don't worry, why are you worried about this anyway? And when we talk to like, you know, again, the rich people, aristocrats, they're like, why are you even concerned with the poor? Do you only care about poor people? Are you being prejudiced to rich people? Like, we're getting these weird kind of vibes. And both of those quotes really stuck with me. Because the first one that says that I that I went that says there are no political prisoners. It reminds me of something that was said, when I was growing up, I think it happened. Um, I, I I grew up in Atlanta and near Atlanta, there's a whole bunch of cities, right? And there's one in particular, East Point, which has a lot of crime. I mean, it's pretty, you know, it's, 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 it's not like super dangerous, but it has a lot of crime. And there was, I think the mayor one year of East Point said, East Point don't got no crime. And it was just so funny to me because it's like, what are you talking about? He's kind of like blatantly erasing that. And there are no political prisoners. The president-elect saying that was just wild to me. And the other one that says, be a patriot, kill a priest. I talked to Andy a bit about this, but it's something that could, it's, it, to me, it's so disgusting and like hard, like hard for me to read because I'm like, I'm not even particularly religious in a Christian sense, but seeing something like that is just like really disturbing. But it's something I could really easily see in America happening if, if there were, you know, more churches or, you know, that were like helping out with similar issues. If this same thing happened, this what happened in El Salvador happened in the States, I can definitely see a lot of people going and putting up stuff like that. So I don't know if you have yeah. any thoughts on those, those little quotes. I, I actually do have a thought on that. Like, I think that 
Um, we are we have already seen um, be a patriot, kill a priest in action in the U.S. Only it hasn't been Christian priests; it's been Muslim priests. You know, it's been non non Christian, non Protestant uh, priests, right? Mm-hmm. Who have been literally gunned down in their churches, uh, or or you know, firebombed, or you know, various act of terroristic violence so i mean yeah like i like not only do i agree with what you're saying that like that's feasible here i think it's already happened and in those in the case most of the cases that i point out there's like an ethnic um and racialized dimension to it uh and that's like been most of it up to this point but i mean we can't gloss over the um the 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 dimensions of race and ethnicity that the way that they play out in America, how it's like there's a class element to that as well. And if in there's there's a I would say I would say that there's a class incentive for uh racist power structures to persist. That's how they, you know there's a there's a material advantage that they gain. And I think that if even if white, so called ostensibly white or um non seemingly foreign religious institutions started uh you know threatening that that class advantage i think that they would probably come under fire as well it's just an extension of the same kind of motivation oh 100 percent. i mean as uh, as the history of liberation theology attests to it it's the the church is fine the ruling class will put up with the church as long as they play by the rules as long as they don't lift their head up too high or you know actually try to do what the what christ sent them to do so it's yeah, obvious and, you know what happens to people who disobey speaking of speaking of um uh the, how the the establishment relates to religion there was mm-hmm. there's two really interesting things that happened one was at the very beginning of the movie they were chanting for freedom mm-hmm. regarding elections they wanted mm-hmm. free elections but what they but what what they meant by free elections is they wanted to be able to actually go and vote, right? Because like the um the whole beginning of the movie is like the the state literally like shooting people who are trying to go vote and you know harassing them and so on and so forth. So they're not even letting them go to the polls, which is like that's something that happens in a different way in America as it is. Disfran- disenfranchisement is a rampant problem here. It's just not done you know, with, you know, they're not shooting buses of people trying to go vote. Instead, they're not anymore, you know, but well, yeah, they, right. They, yeah. they sure did. <laughs> Today, I, as far as like uh, 2022, it hasn't happened, uh, you know, in the past couple years, as far as the state doing that. Um, the state does kill people, but not uh, buses of people trying to go vote, as far as I know. I mean, there might be an instance or two that I don't know. Yeah, it's know not quite about. the same beast nowadays. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but there's still, but, but even though that's the case, there still is widespread disfranchisement at the hands of the state. It's the Republican, uh, you know, gerrymandering and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, so, so they were wanting free elections. They're wanting to be, to be able to vote. And then the other thing that stuck out to me was somebody said that there are political implications to the Gospels. And mm-hmm. the response from the state official was, we will take care of those as in like, don't worry, we'll stop the political implications of the gospels. Right. Which is so would be so weird to hear from a Republican, right? Because the political implications of of the gospels as understood in the U S are pro ruling class, pro money elite, pro silver spoon bourgeois, so on and so forth, pro power, 
uh, pro state, you know. Um, so it's so I don't know. It's just so shocking that what freedom means to liberation theologians in South America and what the religious implications the gospel means to them as well, even though both groups are reading the same book, the outcome, the interpretive outcome is so, it's literally the opposite. Yeah. It's, and I think that just largely has to do with the fact that, um, you know, they had a, they had sort of a head start almost in, in the United States. This is where the sort of, um, conservative uh, well i should say capitalist specifically capitalist pro-state uh interpretation of uh the christian uh literature christian scripture comes from it was essentially exported to these latin american countries like we could talk about stuff like the school of the americas which you definitely see some hints of that in the movie even though it wasn't as explicit as i would have liked it to be where which was essentially the school in Panama in the military base in Panama that the US had where they would train these um these officers like there was that one uh, lieutenant his name was Columna in the movie and he shows up multiple times he's basically the the main bad guy that you see always like shooting innocent people and uh harassing yeah. the priests over and over again he was pretty much the perfect candidate for the school of the americas in fact i wouldn't be surprised if you know the writers of the movie said that they was inspired by the many officers many latin american officers that were sent there because it was essentially a indoctrination school for american the american ideology this idea that oh you know, if we just keep our heads down if the peasants stop getting rowdy we'll have all of the nice uh you know material comforts that america has we'll have washing machines and ford trucks and you know all all these all these nice things because when they went to the school of the americas they weren't just taught how to torture and kill peasants they were also shown you know, they were given all sorts of nice goodies and commodities that come straight from America, and they had that dangled in front of them, essentially telling them, like, if you kill it, if you just, you know, strangle enough peasants to death, eventually you'll get a washing machine. You'll have all the nice prosperity that America has to offer you. You just have to do what we say. And yeah. of course, since many of these soldiers were poor peasants themselves, you know, it just kind of, it it's, that's one of the most sinister things about the state apparatus and capitalism is that it, it, it can turn otherwise innocent people into such bloodthirsty monsters. Right. And like in that oh. one, uh, I'm sorry, let me, the, this in, there's that one point at the end where Oscar Romero's like pleading to the soldiers themselves. Like, it's like, these are your people. What are you doing? Like put down your guns. I'm begging you to stop, stop turning your guns on your fellow man. You know, it's something that, um, and it's it something that comes from the Bible as well. There's a part in um, the Gospels where John the Baptist is talking about soldiers harassing the people of Judea and realizing that these are essentially just poor people who also had the opportunity to take wealth from other poor people dangled in front of them, and they took it. So, you know, you know, that's part of the Gospel as a living tradition sort of thing that I mentioned earlier with this Christian-based community. That's something that also comes from the uh that book that i mentioned from the gospel of Solomon Taname. wasn't there so there was a part well there's two parts uh one with about the character you're talking about kaluma uh who's he says to i think he says that student he was like the students um organizations uh unions and cooperatives they're ruining ruining our way of life or the life that we're supposed to have and then later there i don't remember if they were at a church or just like a one of the big like there were so many places 
the the places where the, the rich characters are are just really huge. So I just remember it being massive. But there was someone saying that, oh, you know, what what they're doing now is going to ruin the way of our life. We are just like the American settlers. We're just like them, and we deserve the American lifestyle. And this is what all the, the rich people are, are like going on about. And it's that it's that it's that really weird thing. And it's really hard to see from like living in America and seeing like so many different sides of of like how the interworkings of class and, and how capital actually works when you see other people from other countries they're like yes this is what we want we want this like lifestyle and then what happens for Americans too it's like they have this glorified version of what if I have tons of money and power this is what my life will be like without realizing all the implications behind it and so like you said that's how you have you know people who are just kind of turned into like killing machines that otherwise would, you know, be, I don't know, maybe in the fight to, to like help combat that. And I thought that was just really interesting. Cause I was like, you guys are com comparing yourself to American settlers. You're saying we're just like them. We're like the pioneers. And it's like, that's the know, problem. That's disgusting, <laughs> yeah. dude. I mean, like I said, the, the school of the Americas, that's it, Whenever you read about it, that's one of the things that um, historians often emphasize about it is that it's, it wasn't just teaching them how to, become like special ops killing machines it was indoctrinating them with this sort of american ideology with this sort of uh it was turning them into americans essentially american capitalists and so the the fingerprints of the united states the sort of shadow lurks in the background of this movie everywhere no matter even though they didn't explicitly mention it at any point which i thought was odd there is um, there is a point where there was one of the generals. He was like a he was like a white dude, and he had like a very American accent. And I don't know if that was just like a casting uh, coincidence, or if that was like intended to represent some kind of American representative from the church. Uh, but he he said something really interesting, which was um uh he, he was like i i don't agree with romero on basically anything and i want to say that i don't agree with his uh decision to like call out these killings or whatever because i'm like pro establishment and i want to just i want to lick the boot as hard as i can and then he said but i'm a priest and they're killing priests and i don't want to die <laughs> You know? No, I mean, that's, and, that's an extremely effective measure is just threaten to kill them. I mean, anybody is, yeah. will, you know, and, do anything and, to save their life. And I think that that parallels, honestly, I think it, it parallels Romero's story. Because Romero, he, at the very beginning of the movie, whenever he first introduces himself to the public at, in, the, in, the, in the, um, the role of archbishop, the first mm. thing he says, I think one of the first things he says, if not the first thing, was, um, I come from a world of books. And the implication there is that he was born into privilege and he was born into having access to education and having an easy life. Right. Um, and that's that. And, and obviously he's expected to, like immediately after he uh, gives his introductory speech, he's getting lobbied by the state basically. And by the bourgeoisie, like they're both, they're all like, they're all coming up to him and be like, Hey, we want to give you a house. Like, Hey, we want to, you know, special deals, yada, yada, yada. They're basically just like offering him bribes damn near. And so like he's, he is his material interests at the beginning of the film are not aligned at the, at first with the working class. Right. And so it doesn't, it's not out of, out of, uh, out of the blue that he is not very woke or, or very radical. 
it's it's it makes a lot of sense that he wouldn't be like his material uh conditions are such that he's not incentivized to but whenever his friends start dying whenever fellow priests start dying and whenever he's being basically having his power and authority stripped away that's whenever he becomes more and more radical even though he never fully radicalizes cuz he still is in this you know, position of authority. And so that's, that's what I thought like was really interesting about the movie. It was like a, it was kind of a meta commentary on how material conditions can radicalize you and how they can hold you back from being radicalized simultaneously. Uh, kind of just like, sh- like shaping who we are. It's not, it's not like, you know, Romero wasn't just born this way. He wasn't just, uh, you know, a, a, a radical from the get go or not a radical from the get go. He was, he was shaped into that. Does that make sense? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, though I think the, what, another important, um, you know, uh, what am I thinking? Uh, an angle on that is this sort of, I don't mean to dip into idealism too much, but he was sort of confronted with like, do I, do I really believe what I, what I preach? Do I, am I just a fraud or do I, am I actually going to stand up and do what Rutilio wanted me to? Cause Rutilio implores him over and over again. You know, he's, you can't, you can't just turn your head away. You can't just ignore them. You know, this is the, there's a, um, you know, I could talk about Pope Francis here in a minute is what I wanted to do because his story actually mirrors, uh, Oscar Romero's very much, and he was in Pope Francis deeply admires Oscar Romero. Um, but Pope Francis has this quote where he says, the, shep- the shepherd should smell like a sheep. And that's what, you know, Rutilio Grande and the other two priests that were, that were shown in the movie, that's what they were doing. You know, mm-hmm. they were, and they were literally like getting dirty, like to helping in these farming co-ops. They were digging through trash and stuff with the, with the, with the common people. They were serving them the Eucharist in the park, you know, that's that's what you know when christ came to earth christ came and he spoke to the poor explicitly he he came to them he spoke only to them anytime that he interacts with anybody in a position of power it's usually to rebuke them for their greed or their abuse of their power and it's to implore them to get rid of it to throw it all away and join this sort of common brotherhood that christ is trying to build and you know that that's the sort of dilemma that Oscar Romero faced and he, you know, chose to do the right thing. He chose to sort of throw away his, his opportunity to just join the ruling class and sit comfortably while other people suffered and died. He chose to join them in a sense. So Um, that's one of the things I find very, you know, inspiring about his story. Like he was, he was truly a good man, I believe. Yeah. Side side note. I was, um, I was reading uh, Malatesta's Anarchy pamphlet his little that little short book about uh nice. anarchism. Yeah. oh yeah and and he refers to um an anarchist society as a society of friends now are you familiar with that term from anywhere society of friends uh the only thing that jumps to mind is the quakers yeah exactly that's exactly what i was gonna say i was like wow <laughs> this is like the quakers literally call their church the society of friends mm-hmm. so it's, it was just really weird Really, uh, really, really, really interesting parallel. Because also, Quakers are very like progressive. Or at least the Hicksite Quakers tend to be. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's They've some more been. kind of like um, American Protestant style Quakers that are kind of just like any other uh, church. Um, but but the kind of like there's there's a there's also a, a super radical strain of Quakerism that's like uh, always been like at the forefront of things like abolition and stuff like that. 
yeah, unfortunately, they've kind of many like many aspects of Christianity. They've especially have like kind of lost their edge in uh, yeah in the modern day. So yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen some. Oh, oh well, okay, not recently, but a few years back, I saw a lot of activity of radical Quakers. Um, I saw this video of some guy who was he was basically like fighting cops, um, and it was like an anti-immigration or it was a pro-immigration anti. Uh, it was opposed to stopping immigration, right? Like it was, mm-hmm. it was like a pro, like undocumented type of protest or whatever. And dude was like, like punching cops and stuff. And then like, I found out like, oh, this dude's a Quaker. And then I found out that there's like this whole group of like anarchist Quakers online that had like a small, like, you know, for a fleeting moment, they had like a podcast and a little, like um, a little scene or whatever, but it kind of like evaporated because of lack of interest, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I it was it really got me interested in Quakerism for a minute, uh, mm-hmm. a very short period of time, and you know I kind of looked into like uh, their their leaders' thoughts, and he's got this like um, it's kind of that whole like what the the universal uh, priesthood of of, of man, believe, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, of leaders, yeah. yeah. That's a yeah. Martin Luther concept, yeah, very he, uh, fundamental to Protestantism. He's big on he's big on like um he says that all beings have the inward light of Christ and mm-hmm. if you will open yourself up to that inward light like you can like rather than having to need to read the bible or not you could just like have direct communi- communion with like the divine or something like that yeah, um yeah. and so he's like he's like basically Jesus is available to everyone whether or not you've ever read the name Jesus was is like his position which I thought was is an interesting uh, take. I've not not heard a lot of Christians talk like that, you know, being from the Bible Belt. Yeah, I mean, in liberation theology, actually has a as a somewhat similar uh, concept to that. You know, the the thing about like Quaker radicalism and and like liberation theology, Qua- uh, Catholic radicalism, they look very very similar in a lot of ways because they're essentially just living up to the the you know the the character, the image of Christ when he came to Earth. So liberation theology, one of their tenets, I believe it was Aya Curia, posited that there's two, kind, two kinds of um, like theologies of salvation. It, one is test theology, and the other is project theology. Test theology is the one that a lot of people are familiar with, even non-Christians, where it's like, okay, you die, you go to heaven, they read out of a big book, did you do good things, did you pray, did you believe in Jesus? Okay, if you did all of that stuff, you're in. You pass the test. Project theology is something that is specific to, I, I believe it's spe- specific to liberation theology, whereas salvation is a project that all of mankind participates in. All beings that are capable of free will and love and capable of you know, building this sort of earthly project together can partake in. And that includes non-Christians, so even atheists are able to do this, which means that salvation essentially isn't, isn't locked behind a gate for anybody. And that's where they kind of get into trouble. A lot of liberation theologians get sort of wacky and get in trouble with like Catholic dogma and stuff like that, which, you know, some of that's I'm, I'm okay with, some of it I'm not. Um, that's, but that's an entirely different subject. But I really do appreciate this idea of like salvation is something that we all achieve together. It's not just something that like you alone are able to do. And it's not based off of like, oh, did you say your Hail Marys every night before you go to bed? It's like, no, did you you know, fight systems of power that are corrupted, that are inherently sinful and cause suffering in the world. And that's something I, I really appreciate about liberation theology. There's a, um, a YouTuber named Damon Garcia. 
Um, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's Damon Garcia. I'll, I'll look that up while I'm talking. I'm familiar um, with him. Yeah, he's friends with um, several Christian leftists that I follow on Twitter. Okay, then, I, then I've got the name right. Uh, yeah. yeah, he he um, he has this uh, this video on narratives of the Bible, um, mm-hmm. and he says that there's like three broad broad speaking narratives that you can pull from the Bible that are kind of in contradiction with each other, and whether whether you adopt one, it kind of like nullifies the other, and I. I think that's basically what he was saying. And and there he gave he gives three narratives, but I don't remember two of the narratives. I only remember the one that I found like to be compelling and um and and interesting in like a libertary way. And that was I think kind of the one that he was like endorsing in the video. But it was basically like like everybody kind like not everybody, but a lot of people are very familiar with these like biblical stories that I'm going to recant. Um so like if you think about like the Old Testament, it kind of starts basically as far as like like there's there's a whole bunch of like stuff that happens before the Jews in Egypt, but all of that stuff is kind of like whenever you get to the Jews in Egypt, that's kind of like the narrative that they just had, like their cultural narrative, right? And their their like religious cultural like things that they had, artifacts that they had. Yes, yeah, it's, it's mythological. It's like a mythological origin story essentially. Like the many yeah. historians agree that the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob probably didn't exist as real people. But it still carries some a lot of significance for the implications of the Bible, and there are a lot of liberatory aspects, even in those stories, as you know, as often problematic as we could find them. You know, yeah. that, but that's an entirely different subject. But continue, yeah. Yeah. So, so the real plot line narrative starts there, right? The other stuff is kind of background information to know, like, this is what the Jews believed at the, at the beginning, whenever this uh, whenever this story takes off. But the story, basically, as a story, takes off in Egypt. And it it takes off from the perspective of of the Jewish population who is in this in this story enslaved. So this is a story from the perspective of the oppressed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And obviously we know, you know, floods and all this kind of stuff. The Jews are liberated uh from slavery God, by God. God like has a divine intervention, liberates them from slavery. So then they go off into the, you know, they're in this wandering stage and they're getting like commandments and stuff. And they ask God for a kingdom. And God's like, bro, you don't want a kingdom? Like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, chill. Like, you're good. Just, just like, you know, go be my people. And like, don't worry about that. And they're like, no, we really want it. And then, so he gives it to him. But he's like, fine, whatever. Um, and then like, then they start having an empire, right? Cause they, 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 he grants them a state, right? That's what they're asking for is like, a, basically they want to create the state. And, and he was like trying to tell them no, but they weren't listening. And then like they create the state and they start doing like slavery and empire and all this kind of, and God's like, see, like, uh, I'm, I got to take this away from y'all. Cause our bunch of like, I don't know why you wanted the state. Like, it's not a good thing. Like <laughs> you don't need the state. So he takes it back from them. Um, and uh, I don't remember a whole. There's, I mean, obviously there's going to be gaps in my biblical knowledge. I am not like a. I don't. I'm not a Christian or nothing like that. Um, I'm not anti-Christian or anything. I'm just. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. Point is that then Jesus comes along eventually, right? And Jesus does this like a. Uh, you know, it's really hard to read the story of Jesus and not see all the liberation that is like inherent to that. You have but then to there's be also trying not to see it. You have to yeah. really yeah. be like because. Just a quick interruption. We, we were watching this, and and uh, when we were watching the movie, and they're talking about like, oh well, you know, what, how people can like very easily like uh, misinterpret stories and such. And it's like, it's with Jesus, it's clear. 
it's clear what he was doing. Um, but I, I, so I don't really know how people can take that apart and say like, oh, he, he loved rich people. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Oh, precisely. I could go on for hours about the, the ways that, you know, capital and the state have, have twisted, uh, you know, the image of Christ into like this supply side Jesus where he's setting up, you know, uh, he's like a, entrepreneur in ancient judea or whatever like this is a horrible horrible prayer you video i saw once that was basically just that it was horribly disgusting the ply side jesus yeah no like and like he literally like sets up a like a stand to sell like palm oil and he like teaches a dude how to like invest in it's it's the most disgusting thing i've ever seen i I hate Oh god, I hate them so much. <laughs> I well, yo actually, could you actually send that to me for a good laugh? Because to me, oh, I'll <laughs> I'll find it later. Yeah. <laughs> and if we, I don't know if we will eventually have like show notes or whatever. If we find that, we'll maybe link in the show notes. If you also want to either laugh or be disgusted or both. If we ever, if we ever get this like video going on, we're gonna put that as one of the memes. We also gotta do the get out of your mind clown meme. Cause... Really quick break break between all of the important stuff that we're doing. Greg, have you ever seen, and yes, this is a part of the podcast, so you have to answer seriously. Have you okay. ever seen this meme? It was a vine from a long time ago. Someone dressed up like Ronald McDonald. They stood on top of the counters and said, get out of your mind. I'm going to make freaking lose it. Have you ever seen that video? No, I've never seen that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sending the video, also putting it in the show notes. Uh, today okay, was excellent. I was today years old whenever I first saw it too. So he is the meme master. <laughs> um, if you're listening to this while Greg is watching the video, you should pause, open a YouTube tab, and search Ronald McDonald get out of your mind and enjoy <laughs> what we're enjoying. Eight seconds or seven to eight seconds of pure bliss. I I truly miss the days of Vine sometimes. I mean, it was usually as cringy as TikTok, but the fact that it was shorter just made it a little bit easier to, to digest, I think. I mean, brevity is the soul of comedy, so they say. So that's, that's one of the things I always loved about Vines is that they forced you to be a lot shorter because some TikToks are just entirely too long. They're just they entirely them. too like you take a joke and you just slam it into the ground in 30 seconds. Like it's, it's well terrible. that. And yeah. I think they, at one point they like, after they made it to a minute, I was like, okay, this is a lot. And then one time I was watching this TikTok video, I did not know that you could extend them to like three minutes or something. I was so upset. I was like, is this YouTube? What is <laughs> yeah, it? I wish there was a setting in TikTok. This seems like so like obvious of, a, of an option, but why isn't there a setting in TikTok that you can switch on and off? video length like if you don't want to be subject to short videos you be like i want videos that are five minutes you know or if you only want 30 second videos be like i don't want anything above 30 seconds like why can't you do that that's that's actually genius you should write them you should let yeah, the, yeah uh, well, whatever give chinese company is that owns them. oh well they're they're definitely going to have it in like you know less than a year and i'm not going to get any any money off that but I wanted because to... I said it out loud on the internet, and my, you know it's game over. <laughs> yeah, listen. Once you say it on the internet, it's gone. Someone paid for that, baby. It's not your idea. Um, 
one the two things I wanted to get into, there's one side note I'm going to say before this, but the other two kind of major topics I want to get into is the cinematography and also a little rose and thorn. So if you guys have never done rose and thorn exercises, they're very cringy. You just say the rose and your thorn. So what was your favorite part and what's the part that you would wish you would change? And in this case, we'll say for the movie. Before all give of me, that, though. Give me one second. Uh, I got to let my dog out. You Y'all can keep talking. I'm just letting you know I'm stepping away from the mic for a second. All right. Go that's ahead. that's fine. I will, I'll go ahead and say this because I had uh, mentioned it to Andy while we were watching the, the film, but um, the character Arista, which is like the person who her husband is a priest and also like a bourgeoisie guy who got kidnapped or something. And he, she yeah, he wanted- was a, um, he was the culture. He was the minister of agriculture who was like sympathetic to the land reform that the peasants wanted. And he was kidnapped because of that. Right. And yeah, and they were like, uh, we'll let him go if you let go of the political prisoners. There was that whole thing. I just, I just, very short side note, I think it's just very funny that her name is Arissa because, uh, and not trying to be culturally like insensitive by any means, but it just it's, it looks like it was short for aristocrat. And I don't know if the writers did that intentionally, uh, but if so, that was brilliant. It's just brilliant because that's how I was reading it. Um, and she yeah, kind I, of. I looked it up after you mentioned that, and it is actually a real Spanish name. So. Okay. Okay. But it's but, definitely fitting for her for her character because she was probably she was kind of terrible. She was she was she started off kind of bad and she got worse and then you know there's this big comment about like I'm not gonna get my baby baptized where the Indians are. It's like, girl, what? <laughs> yeah, that was so. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, like oh, and that really like reflects like the colonialism aspect of people like like how there's this like um. And I think some of this was kind of reflected in like kind of the casting, uh, how like there's like um, uh, basically white Spanish people who, um, you know, are the aristocratic descendants of colonizers from Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and I mean, I that, get... is, that is, you know, that's a very um, common theme in liberation theology is like they've constantly point out the. Um, the sort of uh, the the racial aspect to it, because a lot of these struggles, particularly in Guatemala, where the genocide happened, or there's still an ongoing genocide today, even um, it was largely indigenous people or you know mixed indigenous people who were suffering the most under that. And a lot of these, a lot of the famous liberation theologians like Ignacio Ayer Correa were actually from Spain, and they moved, they were appointed to these countries at, by the Catholic church as part of their assignments. And then they, you know, they just fell in love with the land of the people and they be- sort of betrayed their whiteness in a sense. They betrayed their, their culture. So cool. Betraying whiteness is dope. Oh, I totally, I totally agreed. And unfortunately, it, like I said before, Aya Korea, he, he paid the ultimate price for it, but he, he truly loved El Salvador as a country. I think he spent m- like the vast majority of his life there. I think he moved there. He was put, he was appointed there when he was like in his early twenties and he stayed there for the next 40 years. So shout out, shout out to uh, uh, race trader magazine. Uh, they have this great um, quote, uh, treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. That's a shit to live by right there. Very based abolish whiteness right oh, now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get rid of it. Um, all right, y'all. There's the cinematography. There's two things I wanted to say about the cinematography that I noticed. Which is, this is, I guess, both cin- cinematography as in like the like actual scenes of way it was shot and also the kind of like balancing they did. Um, 
and one thing I wrote down in my notes on this is that it's not like a funny movie by any means, but it's not tense the whole time. Like there was a couple of little parts in the film where I smiled, like when they are in, um, when uh, Romero's in the confessional and someone else is talking to him um, and says like, oh yeah, I have, you know, here's my confession. I don't like this person. <laughs> I don't like the archbishop, blah, blah, blah. And then like, then it goes like, how do I apologize to, to him? And it's kind of like this kind of, it's not laugh out loud funny, but it's kind of like a little sweet, charming moment of this person, like apologizing for being so critical of the archbishop when the archbishop Romero came to later, like, be on their side and help fight for them. And um, also on that note, on the like scene and how it's, you know, how it's filmed, there's such really, really stark contrast right after one after another. Like they go from like these really big, rich um, tennis courts. And then right after that, there's a scene of school children and they find a woman who is dead and naked on the street while they're walking to school. I was even in prison. I thought it was really, really cool. A little aspect and then also like the uh the confessional scene um yeah it was real like cute and comedic and like it was also really heartwarming because whenever the confessional like uh at the end of it he says thank you father and he leaves um and he's like gone he's out of the booth uh romero says uh no thank you father basically um saying that he's the one that's received guidance you know by being rebuked by this guy I thought that was really sweet. Yeah, that's a, that's a very Catholic concept. This, you know, and I, well, not just Catholic. I mean, very Christian in general. They you find in lots of uh, lots of different interpretations is that like no spiritual leader is above anybody. So anyone can learn from anyone else. The you know the the archbishop of the entire country is receiving uh, advice and guidance and spiritual. Like he's basically being spiritually righted by this lowly parish priest who is out like with his uh elbows in like the deep like the dirt and the grime with the with actual people he's mm-hmm. you know he was he reminded him of his obligation essentially which yeah. I, I thought was really good yeah um greg do you have anything that you want to say about the cinematography acting or whatever we're talking about um uh i should have i really should have been taking notes but i can't i can't recall anything very specific i i, I want to say that i really I really appreciated the kind of um, the aesthetic continuity. Like it was like the, the film was really drab throughout. Um, Even, even whenever things are colorful and there's, you know, sharp hues and everything, it still is somehow bleak. And um, uh, it's like, it's like, it's weird. It's like, it's not hopeless. You're right. Which kind of reflects people's condition because their people are full of hope. But it's also daunting, and and it's like uh, it's it just it's 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 not looking good either. <laughs> yeah, the, the shots of the slums in particular were very like very hard to watch. Yeah, you know, like because there are people digging through trash in order to find things that they can use, and everyone is just all the time just dirty and just like they just look totally dejected. Oh, in the and, the scene where the boy was dead. Uh, whenever they assassinated the the radical mm-hmm. priest and the the I guess his father came, mm-hmm. <sighs> that was so hard. I almost started crying. Like it was it was very, um, I don't know. It was very heavy. 
not a lighthearted, family-friendly film, but, I, yeah. <laughs> but definitely, like, definitely, like, really impactful without being, even, I don't know how to explain this, because a lot of people get shot, but it wasn't overly gory. Like, it was very violent in the fact that there was a lot of violent things happening, but it didn't take the approach of, like, some, I think, directors feel to show that, just to let you know that people are dying, we're gonna just make, like, it's gonna be a bloodbath. It's gonna yeah, be yeah. blood everywhere. And it wasn't like this, it didn't sensationalize. It, it felt very real and rooted. And I think also with it being filmed, like how you said, it's kind of like moody and bleak. Um, uh, how it's kind of moody and bleak. I think that that has to do with like, I don't know how to explain it because the cameras, they're not filmed in a documentary style like Blair Witch, like first person, but it does feel like a very real like documentary type filming of it. Like all of the colors are kind of kept the same. It just feels like we're just following this person throughout like their life. Um, but to to move on, I'm going to start first. Wait, with can I can I mention one thing that I I just realized that I really did like about the cinematography, yeah. is that like when you're on your point about the gore, is that at no point is is the actual gore that you see like in the movie, like the special effects and everything, is very is very you know sparse. And a lot of the times you don't even see the suffering; you just hear it. Like in that one scene where he's in the prison cell listening to the other priest get tortured again. The but the worst gore that they show in the movie, and I noticed at the end, is when they're flashing through all the pictures of the actual dead bodies of people who were killed by the government then. Like actual photos of real people who died and had their faces mutilated by whatever it was that these sick bastards used on them. I thought that was significant. And talking about like just the mood of the movie in general, um, you never... The violence was never so overt. It was never like ever present on screen, but you always felt tense. Like there was a violence in the air of that movie. Like there was always like the threat dangling over everyone's head. And that's what I was, you know, really put me on edge about it. It's very anxiety inducing almost, but that just makes you understand how they must have felt actually living it. I missed whatever you said because I had to let my dog back in, but don't repeat it. <laughs> it's fine. It's all good. Um, yeah, no, I felt the same way about like how it, it's very tense very a lot of anxiety but again like i think there was enough of a like slowness it it had a good pacing because there was times where okay this just happened and i can breathe it wasn't just kind of back to back to back um Mm. but so for my like kind of wrap up of at least for this for the movie part of the rose and thorn my rose of the film is that I think, and I need to do some more research, and I'm going to, you know, read some books or articles after this, but I think it was a pretty good um, introduction to Romero and the whole situation in El Salvador during that time period for, um, for, for a movie. I mean, a lot of times when we're getting anything, especially if it's coming with, like, anything that's kind of more radical, revolutionary, I, I'm like, mm, I don't think we should start with this movie. But I think this movie, in my opinion, having not read too much of the history, is a really good starting point and something that I think, you know, anyone, whether they're interested in politics or or anything like that, would probably be interested to be like, okay, well, I want to learn more. Um, and, you know, at the end of the movie, they say that the movie was made, I think, in 1989 or released in 1989. It said between 1980 and 1989, more than 60,000 El Salvadorans were killed. And I'm curious to go back and look at the population of El Salvador at the time so I can get a, a scope of, cause that's a lot, but I wonder how mm-hmm. much that is, especially for that time. So I'm gonna go do some research on that. But um, my thorn of the movie, and I talked to Greg a bit about this, is the acting was spotty in some places. The main characters were great, but for example, um, Arista, 
Uh, I, I didn't think she was like, and I know her character wasn't supposed to be extremely passionate and motivated, whatever. She was just kind of flat as a character. And there was a couple other actors where I was like, I think they should have cast someone else. I don't think it took away from the movie as a whole, but that would be, if my negative would be maybe cast a little differently for some of the side characters. Um, but um, Andy, Greg, what are your rose and thorn? Greg, you want to go first or want me to go? Um, sure. I mean, my my rose would I guess would guess um I would guess would be it's it the entire movie, the entire slant of the movie it was certainly sympathetic not just to Oscar Romero as a character as a man, but like the liberation liberatory elements of the struggle in El Salvador at the time. Like we were we were also talking about this before before the show and um there's a scene towards the end where Oscar Romero is arguing with a priest, a former, I guess not a former priest, but a current priest who has like taken up a gun. He's like literally holding a gun in the scene, speaking to Oscar Romero. And he's like, he's like, what else can we do? This is, this is what we have to do. We cannot not defend ourselves. And Oscar Romero and him having this sort of um, back and forth where Romero is saying, you're, you're just like them. You're just like the military. You're just going to spill more blood there. You know, you're, you're just repeating the cycle. Like, this is never going to end if you keep doing this. And he's like, well, what else are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to let them kill us? We'll just die that way anyway. And the, that argument's never like resolved. That's the last time they speak to one another. And it's just sort of less like hanging there. So it, 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 it implies that like neither of them are, you know, it it certainly tries to condemn the violence of the of the insurrectionaries. Like at no point are they made like out to be like total heroes, but it's always understandable. It's they're portrayed sympathetically in the sense that their actions are, um, like almost justified. Like they're facing extreme violence. It only makes sense that they would respond with violence. And I thought that that was interesting that they managed the they managed to balance the sort of conservatism of Oscar Romero, who like didn't want to see any more bloodshed, with the the desperate need for liberatory violence against the regime. I would say that it is resolved uh, because Romero is killed. <laughs> and oh, that's yeah. kind there, of the, go. the answer to that that whole dynamic. Like, are we supposed to sit there and let them kill us? And Romero chooses to sit there and let them kill him. And uh, I think that his death speaks volumes for his um i mean yeah his convictions and and i'm not trying to knock him for his convictions but it is a losing strategy at the end of the day no i mean that's you know that's and that is fair although i think that he understood like i mean he was obviously an old man he wasn't about to go pick up a pick up a gun himself but he i think that he just really didn't want to see anyone else die because he had yep. already he'd already had several friends. He had Rutilio die on him by government violence. He had the other the other priest was tortured to death and killed in the cell next to him. He listened to this man die, and he just didn't want to see anyone else suffer this. He was just you know just broken, and he decided to use his public platform, his his position of power, to try and leverage uh, something, anything. He you know that yeah, the speech he, at the end that that it shows he, him like talking about how he he wrote a letter to the president of the United States asking them to stop sending guns to El Salvador is a very famous speech. It's something he actually did, and it unfortunately didn't work because Ronald Reagan is an enormous piece of shit. But, I mean, yeah, but that's that's what I'm saying. Like he's 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 trying. Like what was that, what is that quote? Uh, no one ever retrieved achieved their liberation by appealing to the uh, humanity of those that oppress them or something like that. Yeah, of course, yeah. And, and that's that's I mean that's his mistake. You know, is that he he thinks that 
He thinks that people who have a material incentive to oppress him and the people who he cares about can be rationalized out of that position, you know, or even emotionally connected with out of that position. But they have an emotional connection to their material well-being, and their material well-being, as so far as they understand it, is connected to the oppression of others. Mm-hmm. And and so there is no, like, there's nothing you can do. You have to take away their power, and you can only do that by seizing your own power. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. At the end of the day, I do disagree with him on that. You know, and it's it's unfortunate that um, you know, he wasn't able to achieve much more, and he was he was killed so early in his in his radicalization process. It's entirely possible he would have ended up like some of the more the really radical uh, parts of liberation theologians. Like, there's one. I don't, I don't remember what his name is or what, or where he was, but he actually resigned from the priesthood and became a gorilla himself and like picked up a gun and like was in the jungles with these gorillas. And there's another, um, he actually passed away a couple of years ago um, in Southern Mexico in Chiapas where the Zapatistas are. They called him the red Bishop because he was just like an open Marxist and uh, negotiated with the Mexican government on behalf of the Zapatistas and refute like basically tried to wield his power and like build a shield around the Zapatistas and try and, you know, use that against them. But he was a lot more radical than, um, than, than St. Oscar Romero was. So it's, you know, there's a, there's a large variation in that it's a very, you know, uh, I guess varied. Yeah. Is uh, that, ideology. is that your thorn and rose? Did you do both? <laughs> um, I guess my, my rose, my more explicit rose would be, um, wait, so that was a thorn. No, 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 I mean, yeah, no, I mean, that was my rose. This oh, is my thorn. My okay. thorn, I guess, would be, I guess my biggest thorn would be that it didn't explicitly call out the U.S. Like, uh, for for its, um, for its role in what was going on in the, in the Guatemalan government at the time, there are, there's a couple, like, very subtle hints that if you, if you knew anything about it, you would notice immediately. So, like, one thing that, um, me and Matthew were talking about before the show is, um, a lot of the soldiers were carrying M16 rifles that were bought directly from the United States. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it's, it's mentioned that he wrote a letter to the President of the United States asking them to stop sending guns to El Salvador, which just like taken on its own in a vacuum, that almost sounds like, you know, sort of innocuous, like, oh, they were just selling. I mean, the U.S. sells guns to everybody, not necessarily, but the, you know, for, I guess, bad purposes is a very uh, vague way to put it. But this regime was being explicitly backed up by the United States for that explicit purpose. This wasn't just a, oh, we just sell guns to anybody that buys them from us. It was very purposely being propped up by the United States, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there was that one part where, um, where he goes into the church to try and pick up the Eucharist after that crazy asshole shoots up the the altar in the tabernacle and everything. The, the dude who shot it up was wearing like American military chevrons on his arm and he was very obviously white and very obviously spoke with an American accent. So I think that was sort of the implied, the, yeah, it's implied that he was like an American officer that was sent to the El Salvadoran military to help train them, which is something that the United States did all the time with all of these repressive regimes in. Oh, we still uh, do it there. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. But at the time it was, it was, they were just all over the place. There were Americans in every single one of these Latin American countries, like training these militaries and teaching them how to be like psychopathic killers. Yeah. So and, I just wish that the, the, mil- that the movie more explicitly named the U.S., like showed U.S. politicians backing it or just anything, you know? Very much so, because when when you were talking about that earlier, I was just like, well, for me, 
I don't necessarily know what the difference, what an M16 looks like. If someone showed me a picture of an M16, I'd be like, that's a gun. You know, I wouldn't tell you. I, I wouldn't yeah, exactly. tell you. They, they did not. They did not do enough. What uh, the, very like you're right, because that person who shot up the, the, the altar and everything, I was like, OK, this is definitely an American. But they and even though they had the chevrons that you said on the, on the shoulder, it's like mm -hmm. they could have did a little bit more. But that's um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, and, and like we discussed, it, it also could have been for political reasons because the 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 movie was um, filmed and produced by I think it was they're called the Pauline Fathers, which is like a um, a group of Catholic priests. And I was looking, I was reading about the movie on Wikipedia before this, and it's apparently the only like Hollywood movie to have ever been funded entirely by like an order of priests, which oh. was interesting. So it's entirely possible that like they didn't want to like piss anyone off in 1989 at the height of like American like cold war imperialism essentially this is just before the soviet union fell so that sort of you know criticism probably wouldn't have been taken very well yeah i'm so. gonna copy i'm gonna copy your homework a little bit on the uh it, i don't think the u.s involvement was the only thing that was like like orbiting as like a distant satellite it was like present in the film but it wasn't ever explained <laughs> because I mean, going back to the guns, um, the the firearm that that because because one of the one of the radical priests just gets assassinated whenever whenever he's leaving, which was like okay, that's bullshit. Like he's like getting away from y'all, you know, chase him down, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But the other radical priest, like before the one that joined the guerrillas, um, he presents a firearm, like he's like he's like gesturing with the firearm to uh, Father Romero, and. And in, in that conversation you were talking about earlier, in the firearm that he's holding is an SKS, um, right? And I don't know if it was like a Russian or Chinese model, but SKSs, suffice to say, are you know communist weapons. And so, oh yeah. And so the the I think the implication there is that the rebels were in fact being supplied by you know communist forces, and it just goes to show that like. Um, you know, you can say what you want about the USSR, and there's definitely a lot of a lot you could say, and I'm not trying to take away from that in the slightest. But at the end of the day, whenever the USSR was arming people, a lot of times it was the people directly, and when the US is arming people, it's arming the state for the most part, mm -hmm. or, or or some some junta that's gonna like take over, you know, some coup or something. And basically replace the state with a new state. Um, I don't know. So I just thought that was interesting that that he was holding the SKS. And so like no, yeah, that, 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 that slipped me by completely. That's very interesting. Yeah. So like the whole like the whole thing is that like it's not just the like 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 we saw the dude sitting in a guerrilla camp, but we never saw anything other than just a shot of him sitting in a guerrilla camp. And it's mm -hmm. like there's this whole other world that is hidden to us in the film. There's there's multiple worlds that are hidden to us in the film, which in, in a way you could say might be accurate to the lived experience of individuals, right? Because if you mm -hmm. if you are in the state, you probably don't know what it's like inside a guerrilla camp and vice versa, and the common person probably doesn't know what it's like inside the state and so on and so forth. So it's... But like, I don't know. We're watching a movie. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, you know? And it's definitely an educational film, even if it's you know, dramatic, dramatized and so on. It's, it still does have educational value. So I feel like there could have been more there, but oh well. 
is so uh, yeah, you're right. It's it. The movie is specifically about his lived experience. So the fact that he never sees or you don't see much of the gorilla camp in the first place is sort of you know I guess it is sort of accurate. But you're right. It 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 lacks some 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 more some greater context for the entire conflict itself. What were we gonna say, Key? Yeah. I was going to say that was your your thorn, which is, you know, similar to uh, Greg's. Honestly, mine, too. I just I think we definitely could have explored more. And I would say that if they ever remade this film for any reason, I mean, they remake films all the time and or reboot it or something. Um, maybe they could explore all of those things more that like the, the gorilla camp or also like we only saw glimpses of like all the rich people, which I think was good, because, but I think we should have seen more so we could get that stark contrast of what was going on. But uh, my question for you, Andy was what was your rose? Um, the it, it, my rose probably be illustrated by four memorable scenes. Um, one of the scenes was the scene where there's children in the uh, landfill sifting through trash, and there's like a girl walking by, like a skull, like a human skull. Um, another uh, another one would be uh, where where Father Romero was in the prison, like you said, and the camera was on him, and it was like that was also very bleak. Um, I remember I don't want to give the the last one away before I talk about the third one. Uh I can't remember. It'll not might come to me in a second. But basically what these scenes kind of do for me is they oh it was the when the little boy died that I brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. Um so what these scenes kind of do for me is they kind of show how like like in a lot of movies like a lot of movies have like I don't know, things like happy endings or resolutions to conflicts and so on and so forth. And it, and it, they're all like nice little tight bows in a lot of ways, even if it's, you know, a lot of like tragedies and dramas still have resolution, you know, to them and everything. And nothing is resolved in this film. Nothing is fixed. Uh, basically when, when, when the film ends and so going to the last scene, it's the, that I, that I'm, that, has this effect on me is literally the last scene of the movie. Um, Romero is assassinated, right? This is the last, basically the last thing that happens. I think there's a little bit after that, but it's like seconds worth. Um, if not like maybe a minute and Romero's assassination is like, it's like leading up to it. Like you see the dude walking into the church, but it still is like kind of abrupt and jarring. And it crashes like this whole narrative and all this buildup and everything just crashes into a brick wall and falls to pieces. And the film talks about how 60,000 people have died. And this is in 1989. And now we're in 2022. Seems like maybe more than that have probably died at the hands of U S involvement in foreign governments. And it's an ongoing problem today. And it was an ongoing problem then and all of this stuff had happened in 89 already. It was already like everything, all the events in the film had already taken place and, and long enough for people to make a movie about it. And we still have the same issue going on. So I think that the film really reflects reality really well in this way, in that it's like all of the, you know, the good aesthetic, uh, bleak choices in the cinematography, the, the 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 depressing scenes and everything like it, it doesn't lie to you about the reality of the situation it it really is connected to the material it covers and like the problem 
exist today. And the problem is imperialism and its consequences abroad. I want in theology or just um, even just like Christian, Christian or religious uh, involvement in, in social movements or political movements, what would you want people to know about it? Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, I guess the number one thing is like not every Christian's a horrible reactionary or not every, you know, definitely, you know, largely not every religious person is a horrible reactionary, but not every Christian specifically is a horrible reactionary. And even not even every Catholic is a horrible reactionary. Um, obviously, like liberation theology represents what I what I truly believe to be like the full the fullest interpretation of what the Bible and what Christianity and Christ's example for us has to teach us. It is. You know, it is stripped away of all of its of all of the the corruption that is that is plagued it. And I have some I have some like very small criticisms of liberation theology. Like I I personally identify as an anarchist, and liberation theology often leans very like statist, very like Marxist, um, and that's just you know that's just naturally how something that arises from Catholicism is going to look. Um, but it's it it serves as a really good way to introduce people to a brand new set of ideas that maybe they didn't know before. So learning that it even existed was something that got me as a socialist into uh, Christianity in the first place. Cause I was, you know, I spent a period of time where I was simply describing myself as spiritual and I had like a passing interest in Christianity, but I was like, Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's all, it's horribly reactionary. Every church I've ever been to sucked. I don't like the evangelical styles of worship and their aesthetics and everything. And on top of that, they're usually like homophobic and terrible. And then you find out that, you know, there are actual real Christians doing actual real things that they ought to be doing in the third world. And it just kind of clicks and you just realize like, wow, like, the, you know, there's something real here. There's a real meaning here. And that's what just, you know, just drew me toward it. Um, so if anything, I would I would implore people to explore liberation theology a little deeper. The Liberation Theology podcast by David Nachowskis is just absolutely phenomenal. He goes over some some of the most basic texts. He introduces you to the different theorists. He talks about his own time that he spends in Latin America, and there's some like really incredible anecdotes that he shares of his time down there, like um, examples of like imperialism by foreign mining companies or uh, really oppressive governments that he's seen. Um. Yeah, that that would be my my biggest recommendation. And then on top of that, just any of the authors that I may have listed earlier, you know, like Ignacio A. Carrillo is an extremely influential, Gustavo Gutierrez, um, Juan Segundo, Leonardo Boff, any of those guys would, uh, you know, if you're interested, I would definitely recommend you looking up any of their work. That all sounds good. And Matthew will definitely get to you on the spelling of all of those names. <laughs> So we can I can, I can type them out in a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we can appropriately put those in the show notes. Um, I'm trying to speaking, think. Speaking of Matthew, uh, I want to say I want to shout out thank you to our our producer Matt, who basically puts the show together for us. Uh, he's he's here. He could he could say what's up and and acknowledge the shout out, but he's. He's on mute and he's ignoring everything I'm saying. So. He's gonna be a lurker in front of my face. He's a lurker, <laughs> y'all. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah. If if that's all, and and hopefully uh, we can have you on the podcast again. Hopefully we can have Alan. Um, and you know that would be really nice. And with any with any subject, really, not just um, 
not just liberation theology, but all of this has been Absolutely. really cool. I'm I'm so excited about this and see how it, to see how it comes together. I I uh I have one uh mistake that I that I made in this uh little podcast we threw together. I wanted to introduce the show by saying um like as a disclaimer that we're that everyone having this conversation is well aware that Christianity has been you know at the forefront of very heinous things um you know to include but not limited to chattel slavery and justifying it. So it's not that like we're trying to say, oh, Christianity is equals fine because liberation theology is a thing. I think more so this has just been kind of an exercise in exploring how Christianity is actually complicated and it's not as one dimensional as, oh, you know, either liberation theology and so everything's good or, you know, or just bad or, you know, like it's, it's a lot of things going on. So. Yeah, and that's and that's an that's a very like a big uh, question within liberation theology itself is because because so often the oppressed people in Latin America that it's trying to speak to are indigenous people. There is a sort of question of like, well, I mean, we got some skeletons in the closet that we should probably deal with, um, you know, and what we what they do with those, and you know, the larger question of what all of Christianity is supposed to do with its skeletons in its closet is probably a subject for an entirely different podcast that. I wish I wish existed because I I also often wonder what I'm what my role as an individual Christian ought to be in that like sort of redemption process, if you will. You, you just reminded me. I can't believe I didn't bring this up. Uh, but about the Smungoose anarchist Christian commune. Oh, in uh, Taiwan. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, that, stuff like I that. I don't I don't know why I didn't bring this up, but like, yeah, that they're basically just living the book, you know, the book of Acts description of early Christians, like they're just doing that. They're like, "Hey, this this sounds like we're we're they're indigenous people who adopted Christianity as a means of um maintaining their indigeneity, which is a wild story. Uh if you if you want to learn about their story, um there it toss let me see. Let me let me Google this guy. Um, Smangoose. Let me see if I can. Uh... Yeah, it's Veritas et Caritas. I don't know. I, uh, I'll put a. Uh, I'll, I'll tell Matt the spelling of this. But there's a. He has a two part series on these people and how they became anarchists and Christian and how they run their society and it's like super detailed. It's one of the best. Um, anarchist uh videos and maybe even one of the best liberation theology videos i've seen on the internet it's amazing uh highly recommend uh people check that out yeah i mean the 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 entire sphere of christian leftism isn't even uh you know limited to liberation theology you know like i said earlier the um the civil rights movement had a lot of liberatory themes in it but that wouldn't you wouldn't call that liberation theology necessarily um but yeah, I mean, there's an entire myriad of things that you could get into uh, regarding that. But liberation theology is just a very influential one that comes specifically from Latin America, which is a place that has suffered greatly at the hands of imperialism. So, mm. yeah, you know, it's just a very relevant uh, aspect ever, of it to talk about. Have you ever heard of gay uh, LGBT liberation theology? Are you, I mean, well, are you asking like what they, like where it fits into it? or No, I'm saying, I'm pretty sure there's a, a specific substrain of oh i'm certain there is yeah i mean david and the guy who runs the liberation theology podcast he is he is an affirming uh jesuit catholic 
which might sound very odd, but you know, the Jesuits are known for being sort of like like wacky and they have a lot of um individuality like amongst their amongst their ranks. A lot of them end up being like very left wing. Um and as a result, a lot of very conservative Catholics don't like them for that exact reason. So um they they often do uh include queer people in their analysis of like oppression when it comes to uh, you know, Latin American imperialism, along with like racism and sexism and other things. Although it's generally not at the forefront, because it is still ultimately, you know, one of his big flaws is that it is Roman Catholic, so it is based on a lot of uh, Catholic doctrine, which often excludes queer people. Mm-hmm. But there oddly, is a space for them in there. Yeah, oddly though, because early Christian Church was uh, a lot more queer apparently than uh, people are comfortable uh, admitting these days. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could maybe do another podcast on that and get into the details. Uh, I would love we just, to. We, we just let it hang in the air and let the conservatives fucking see that we said it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think we should do a whole out like maybe for um maybe for like Pride Month we just every single episode we fi- like we we film we record should be something related to like queerness and queerness and and leftism and and those things together and how they fit because I will say and. I think I don't know if I said this in a, on the introductory podcast, and I'm getting off topic a bit, but um, I do think that being in leftist uh, spaces uh, as a black queer person, non-binary femme, whatever, it can be alienating. And I think this kind of does tie into what we we're talking about today because I think a lot of times if you're not like connected to a certain community, you're just alienated. It's like this isn't my thing, right? Even these like in the film, these really like rich people, they're like, like why, why should I? care about that even though it's like well it's because you guys are all you guys your neighbors you know this is you know you should care but so i i have had the problem of being in leftist circles and feeling excluded because at least and we can say this facts are facts you go to twitter you hear you hear white you hear white leftists that's what you see like yes it's not that there aren't other leftists there but um but yeah we should definitely talk about that and talk about how different um marginalized peoples fit into leftist spaces and how that can make things more difficult or sometimes um easier if it's just solely for them or something like that but just a Mm -hmm. just a thought yeah that'd be a great episode i i definitely think it deserves more uh attention than what we could give at at an outro One thing yeah. I, the one thing a producer has just mentioned to me is asking me how do I feel as a leftist in LGBTQ spaces. So that's a good thing too because as a queer person, being in queer spaces who is a leftist, I'm usually around liberals or conservatives. So we gonna talk. Well, I'm gonna mic drop that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, is is that all, y'all? I guess so. Yeah, that's all for me. Okay, so I don't know how we sign out. Um, I'm going to say thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to say bye to Craig. We're going to say bye to Greg. We got to say our catchphrases like, hey, 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 roll the music. <laughs> oh, yeah, and mine's is, get out of your mind. I'm going to freaking lose it. Wow, your catchphrase is so much better than mine. I got to change mine. Got to find a good one. <laughs> get good. That's a great catchphrase too. Wow, I I'm the one. I'm the pathetic catchphrase guy. Okay, that maybe that should be my catchphrase. Uh, here's your here's your pathetic catchphrase. I don't know. That's still not good. All of them suck.